Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to, to truly just celebrate the hope that we have in Jesus and who you are. We pray, Father, that as we move into a, a new section of scripture, that your spirit would once again accompany us in this time, Father, that it would soften our hearts to be receptive to you and to uh, the things that you want us to know, to your truths, to, to the things that we need to hear, Father, and that it would elicit the change that you desire in us. Father, that we would be aware of those changes and that we would be obedient to the things you prompt us to do and that we would be able to bring you glory in that obedience and in that devotion. We thank you so much, Father, for the opportunity to gather together and to celebrate the living hope of Jesus Christ. May it permeate and saturate our time together now that it would bring you the glory you so richly deserve. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right, well, good morning. How is everybody? Good, good. It's good to see you. Try it one more time. Good morning. How is everybody? There you go. Good. All right. Well, we have uh, several things to discuss this morning, and it, it will take some time to get through a number of them before we get to, to the scriptures. Just be patient with me. Um, and in fact, I would say that I kind of need to start this morning on somewhat of a controversial subject matter, um, which is never easy to do, uh, and I, I think I've shown you all through the time that I've been here that I've never been one to seek out controversy. It's not like I try to constantly bring it up or stir that sort of attention, um, but I think in the times that I've been here, I've demonstrated I'm not gonna shy away from it, especially if it's necessary, and, and when those times emerge, I try to handle those controversial issues and subjects delicately so that it doesn't incite or create a potential division, which is often the case in our society and oftentimes in our churches. Um, but if it needs to be discussed, I'm gonna discuss it. And, and this is a subject that I have sensed for years does carry a, a certain level of tension kind of underneath the surface specifically for our church. Um, but it needs to be addressed. I, I have to talk about the men's basketball championship and that Baylor University won. Like I have to acknowledge it. And I, I, I hate saying it even really, but it's, it's true and it is, it is controversial. So many of y'all are like so relieved that that's what I'm talking about. It's, it's so controversial because the majority of our church congregation is divided between Baylor fan base and TCU fan base, right? Now we have some other loyal fan bases that make up our congregation. We have some Longhorn fans here, but the reality is the majority of your Longhorn fans didn't actually even go to the school. So they're pretty easy to deal with. Uh, we do have a few Aggies in our midst, and those, those are kind of tricky. Uh, they're really more difficult, though, when they're in a large amount of numbers, and so thankfully we don't have to deal with that. Uh, we do have just a couple of, of OU fans. We call them the enlightened ones, and we love having them here. We would like to have more come and join us, uh, but the reality is the bulk of our congregation is divided between Baylor fans and TCU fans, because we're University Baptist Church in Fort Worth. The, the Baptist part of our heritage naturally brings in the Baylor alums, the Baylor fans, and, and you kind of have that Baptist heritage because it's a Baptist university, but we're in Fort Worth, right across the street from TCU with a vision and a founding that's dedicated to reaching students across the street. So we have TCU students, we have TCU alum, we have faculty, we have a lot of TCU people here and they're bitter rivals. And so it's hard to mention it, but we do need to mention it because it was quite a feat, y'all. I mean, it was the first national championship in men's basketball for the universities. First time they were in the game, right, since I think 1950, I believe is what I heard. And so it bears mentioning. See what I did there? Right, bears mentioning. Come on, stay with me. 
Stay with, I know, but it, it was there, right? You had to mention. It was such a remarkable feat. It was easily the second most notable storyline of the tournament. Easily the, most, the second. Because we all know the most notable storyline was when the, that awesome group of guys from my hometown, Abilene Christian University, took down those Texas Longhorns in that first round. That was really the achievement of the tournament, okay? So I needed to mention Baylor winning, not because they won, because it also served as a good sermon illustration this morning. Uh, because here's the reality, and this is going to be difficult for the Baylor fans to hear, but here's the, gra- it, here's the truth. Is, as great as it was for you, no one's really going to remember it, okay? They're not. They're not going to re- Now, you will. You'll have it etched in your minds. You'll remember where you were. 2021 is going to be hung in the rafters of your, you know, whatever, arena and all this kind of stuff, and you'll remember it. But the majority of the sports world will not remember it, okay? We'll remember that you won, but we're not going to remember a lot of the details. And, and if, before you take offense to this, just take heart in the fact that that's true for pretty much all the champions in basketball. And not even just in basketball, sports. And so let me, let me prove this theory out to you, okay? Uh, and, and let me offer you a quick quiz without looking at your phones, okay? And there might be one or two people, Ryan, I'm looking at you, that might be able to pull this off. But I think the majority of you, what? let me ask you a question. Who won the national championship in men's basketball in 1998? Okay, Ryan knows. I knew he would. Who won in 2005? Ryan knows. He's the only one. 2012. 2016. Okay, unless you're Ryan, nobody remembers. Maybe you're thinking, oh, it got to be Duke, North Carolina, one of those Kentucky schools because they're usually dominant. We don't remember those things. Why is that? Right? We can't remember those sorts of information. The reason I bring this up as an illustration because it's an example of the way that our memories work and how we retain information and how quickly it is that we forget it and, and how easy it is to, to lose sight of these things. In fact, uh, this was a, a field of study that a German psychologist, his name was Hermann Ebenhaus, started in 1880 to 1885. And it's actually often referred to as, I think, the Ebenhaus uh, uh, forgetfulness curve. And his studies were how long it takes you to forget information over a period of time, like how much you lose over this period of time. And it creates this, this curve of how much information you lose. And numerous studies have been done since then. I came across one that was as recent as 2015. And here are some of the statistics from this study. Uh, you will forget 56%, more than 56% of what you have heard within an hour. You will then forget 66% within a day and 75% within six days, right? So if you're discouraged as a Baylor fan that always you remember your championship, at least you're not a pastor, right? Because I read those statistics, those are wildly discouraging for me because what that means is that you guys are gonna forget half of what I tell you today by the end of lunch, right? Like most of all this work that I've put in for today's message, you're gonna forget by the time you finish your table side guacamole, man. And that's discouraged. You'll forget even more by tomorrow. And then within next week, you will forget 75%. That's why we have to keep meeting week after week after week because you guys can't remember it all, right? But this is how our brains work. We don't remember this stuff, which the reason I'm bringing that up, the reason I'm bringing that up is to speak to what discipleship really looks like, right? Because if, if, if your understanding of following Jesus And your commitment to Jesus and the bedrock of that is predominantly built upon coming here on Sunday morning or tuning in online. It is woefully insufficient because you will forget most of what takes place in here. 
The songs that we sing, the scriptures we read, the, the messages that are provided. You might sit there and go, oh, that's good. I'm gonna write that. I'm gonna put that one on Twitter, you know, and, and get those moments. But the reality is that most of it you'll forget. That is not what discipleship should ultimately create. It's got to be more. That's not to minimize that what we're doing here isn't important. It is. It plays a very important role. It's just not sufficient. Discipleship is so much more. We, we often define discipleship here within the context of our church as community teaching and accountability. Those are the elements. And you should encounter those things in every arena, whether it's large corporate worship, small group Bible study, discipleship groups, whatever. We, you should constantly be engaged with community teaching and accountability. And, and ultimately, what should be taking place in your life is a measure of obedience, right? Let, let, me, let me give you some other context to how we try to pursue these things distinct to our congregation. Let's go back to the prayer of UBC that you often hear us reference. Right? What, what's the prayer of our church? We, we are praying for the power of God to be unleashed in our lives, in our church, in our community, in our world, so that every tongue, tribe, and nation can come to know and proclaim the saving work of Jesus Christ. Right? That, that's what we are praying. And we actually intentionally work through that prayer throughout the year. Right? So you can go back to Advent and Advent in many respects, is the encountering of the, of the power of God. I mean, it's, it's God taking on flesh and dwelling among us, and we get a chance to get an up-close and personal look of that power, which then leads us into the first of the year where we allow and dedicate the Easter season, the Lenten season, to be a moment where we reflect, how is that power shaping my life? That's what I've been telling you for the last several weeks. You go through that Lenten devotional guide as we're spending time here. What is God doing in your life? How are you seeing that power unleashed? Now, let me further define what that should look like. It needs to go well beyond just coming here and listening, right? When God's power is unleashed in your life, certain things should happen. It should prompt you towards action, right? That, that's what needs to take place. Like something needs to change. And, and that action typically manifests itself in the areas of transformation and purpose from, from my perspective. Right, so you might get to a point where you're like, I I'm gonna finally confront these things in my life. Right, I'm gonna confront depression. I'm gonna confront anxiety. I'm gonna confront this grief, my, my eating disorder, my addiction, the fact that I'm estranged from a loved one or a family member. I'm gonna seek reconciliation. You're gonna confront certain things that need to be transformed and changed. Other times, that, that power is gonna prompt you to impact the world around you. Right, it's that radical and unyielding love for the neighbor, it's, it's service, it's, it's commitment in those areas of building others up. So it's that, that step of seeing God's power at work in your life is filling out that application to adopt a child, right? It's, it's inviting your neighbor into your home and sharing a meal with them, having conversations with colleagues at work, sharing the gospel, launching a ministry, serving the homeless, working with prisoners and captives, serving the church, right? It's numerous examples of impact of servanthood by radical and unyielding love of the neighbor. So the power of God being unleashed in your life is, is always prompting towards some form of action. I was this, captive to this, but I've been transformed and set free in this regard. I used to do this, but now I find purpose in doing this. That's God's power unleashed in your life. So the question is, what do you do when those stirrings begin to take place? And my hope and my sense is that because we've been intentional about this the last several weeks, you're sensing those things. And you're feeling God prompt you and stir you towards action. So what do you do? Well, you commit, right? It's that step of obedience. 
You make a commitment. That, that's what Commitment Sunday is, is there for. Yes, we're going to have fun. We're going to just enjoy each other's fellowship and company. But, but the idea is to celebrate what God's, uh, God's power is doing in our lives and, and how we're responding to those things. And I've got more details of that uh, over the next several weeks. But we want to be intentional with those commitments so that we can live that life of obedience. So the question for you this morning really begins with, what does commitment look like for you? Is that something you, you tend to embrace or shy away from? And how do you know that you can be effective at it? Like what makes you effective in honoring and maintaining your commitments? I think there's a lot of different answers for us. We all have different ways that we may respond to commitment. I, I think there's a couple of things we can typically point to through past experiences and kind of shared wisdom and knowledge about fulfilling commitments. One is this, it always helps if you're passionate about the thing you're committing to. Like if there's a love there. When I sign my kids up for sports and they make that commitment, it really helps if they love the sport, right? If they don't love playing basketball, practice is going to be a beatdown, right? Like, yes, you have to still go, right? They don't wanna honor that commitment because there's no love there, right? So, so passion and love is the definite component to it. I think also is this idea of making your commitments public. You know how easy it is to escape commitment when you keep it private? You know how many times I've committed to like eat better and work out, but I didn't tell anybody? So I was like, oh, I'll just do it tomorrow. Nobody else knows, right? Like it's so easy to escape those commitments when you keep them private. But when you share them publicly in a small group or a larger group, man, there's, there's accountability, there's encouragement, there's equipping that takes place. And so, so think about like maybe the greatest example that we have in an earthly uh, construct of, of, of this example of commitment. Think of a, of a wedding day. I mean, here you have two people that are confessing love and passion for one another. Right? We all know that if they're standing before each other and there's not love, there's not passion, that, that marriage is not off to a good start. Right? And, and it's because of that commitment, that passion, that they're going to be able to make those vows and make those commitments to one another. And so what do they do with that love and that passion? And they don't conceal it. They throw a party. Right? They, they make it public and they celebrate it. They're excited about it. That, that's this beautiful expression of what commitment really looks like. How much more so then should we demonstrate that with our commitments to God? Right? If that's an earthly expression of it for us, how much more then when we sense God stirring us and moving us should we respond in such a way? Now let me clarify a few nuances to that. When I talk about passion and love, let me be very clear, there might be some tasks and some things that God calls you to that you don't love, right? Think Jonah and Nineveh. If you haven't heard that story, go back online. We did it for about eight years uh, when I was here earlier, right? So seriously, like there are some things he's going to call you to that you just don't love. Your passion and your love is not for the task, it's for the king. Same as you commit a wedding vow, right? Those are hard vows, but I do it because I love you. Right, so the passion and love is directed towards the creator more than the task. And, and the commitment should be public. Right? It should be confessional because it's brought out in community. What's discipleship? Community teaching accountability. Right? When God's power begins to be unleashed in your life, you share what he's calling you to. You share that action that he's prompting to you in the context of community. Community helps discern it. They help encourage you. They help equip you. You, you do it in the context of being taught his word, his scripture, his 
His scriptures are what keep us on the sound and narrow way, adhering to sound doctrine and making sure it's good and, and honorable and trustworthy. And then we have accountability. Accountability to make sure we move towards obedience. And so what ends up happening is that when God's power is unleashed in our lives, we don't take those stirrings and that prompting towards action and keep it in isolation. We celebrate it in community. And what then takes place is we begin to discover that the things God is prompting me to do coincides and further equips what he's calling us to do. And we begin to see that God's power is not just being unleashed in our lives, but in our church. And it becomes a communal commitment. And it's not just what am I doing, but what are we doing? That's the other aspect to Commitment Sunday. Celebrating what God is doing in your life, but also to challenge ourselves. This is what he wants to do with our church. And so we move into a new series. All of that is background and context for this series, right? That we, we went through the first part of the year. How is God's power working in our life? Now we enter a new series. How is his power working in our church? And so in order for us to do that, there are numerous passages of scripture where we can find an enrichment of the church. We did this last year when we went through Ephesians, right? Because Ephesians is a great work that speaks to what you see in the church, especially those last three chapters. But this year with this, this attention and this intentionality towards fixing our eyes on Jesus, right? We wanted to have the words of Jesus really speak to how his power works out through the church. And that's what led us to looking at these letters in the book of Revelation. And so that's where we're going to start our series. Grab your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter one. Now, anytime you start a new series, uh, there's quite a bit of groundwork that has to be done. I wanted to give you that context because that really helps you understand some of the why in the significance of what we're moving towards, not just with Commitment Sunday, but with this series. But there's more context for us whenever you open up a new book of the Bible, especially when that book is the book of Revelation. Uh, and, and just to clarify a few things as we begin this series, this is not a study through the entire book of Revelation, okay? Um, we're gonna stop after the letters to the churches. If you wanna keep on with some of you college students that understand it all, maybe you can do like an early morning Bible study and we'll, go, we'll come to your class early and, and listen to it all. It's, it's really just an introduction to the first few letters where you have Jesus speaking directly to these churches. And, and that's what we're gonna do. But it's gonna take us some time. We'll be here for, for several weeks uh, and, and then some. Uh, and I really look forward to it. But I wanna make sure that whenever we start a new series, we do the groundwork that kind of helps set the tone for the entire series. And when you think about the book of Revelation, there's a lot that needs to be said. You, you heard uh, April and Kevin hit on some of the, the, the nuts and bolts of it. Who wrote it? When and where? Th those are some really good things for us to have in the back of our mind. Patmos was an island that was used for exile and banishment. In fact, we'll see in verse 9 when we read it later that John was on that island probably as a result of being punished and, and exiled as a result of his testimony of Jesus, right? So he's being persecuted for his faith. We know this is in the early part of of the church, somewhere between 50 to 90 AD. And, and this is a, kind of a, the moment where they likely are experiencing some intensified levels of persecution. Right, so we have some of those, those details, but one of the things that I wanna sort through is that question, why is it always so confusing? What, what makes Revelation so difficult to understand? And there's several elements to this that, that I kinda of wanna highlight for us this morning. One of the reasons it becomes difficult to understand is because it's a very diversified genre. Right, a lot of other scriptures that you read through, you can really pinpoint and say, okay, well, this one's a letter, this is historical, this is poetry. Revelation's kind of a mix. 
right? We, we know that it's prophecy, and prophecy already is somewhat difficult. That's typically what people think of when they hear about Revelation. It's prophetic about the end times, which is another level to the complexity, because it's not just that it's prophetic, it's apocalyptic as well, meaning end times. So apocalyptic and prophetic literature is somewhat confusing, uh, but what we can often miss is that we'll overemphasize those elements and lose the sight that it is a letter. It's a letter written to churches at a specific moment in history for specific reasons, at specific occasions, and, and there's a lot to be learned from that. As a result, it's actually pastoral in many respects. It's being sent to encourage and equip and, and uh, fortify and strengthen the church on so many different ways. And so what'll happen is it'll create confusion because we'll forget some of the elements of the genre and, and we'll fixate on prophecy. And this is where we often kind of veer off whenever we start studying prophecy. And we've talked about this before. Two, two important things to consider whenever you're studying prophecy in the scripture. Uh, the first is this. Everything in the scripture needs to be read through the lens of Jesus. Now that, that's, that to me is a given, right? Everything you read, you should in some way go, how does this help me understand Jesus? And if you think that's just my approach, let's remember Jesus on the road to Emmaus, right? He's walking with those two, those two individuals who don't yet recognize him. And what does he do? He begins to tell them everything that is written in all the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus uses himself as the lens to interpret scripture. It's remarkable. I would have loved to have been there. I'd talk about the best sermon ever, right? That would have been incredible. So we look at everything through the lens of Jesus. How does this help me understand Jesus and who he is? The second thing about prophecy that especially often gets missed when reading Revelation is that it has to make sense to the initial readers as well. Even if they couldn't have anticipated everything that Jesus was and all that he was going to do, there still had to be something that made sense to their current context. So let me clarify that for you. When John's writing this, the initial readers of the day are not sitting there going, all right, y'all, in a couple thousand of years, there's gonna be this new country called Russia, and they're gonna have all these crazy helicopters, and that's how it's gonna happen, right? Like, that's not how they understood it, okay? What they had understanding in their immediate context, in their immediate time. That's what creates confusion for us. This imagery, these, these pictures, was a, a language and terminology that was way more familiar to them than it was to us. And so it feels confusing to us, but it made much more sense to them. It means we have to do greater work to figure out, well, what did that image mean? What did that, that example mean to this initial audience? That, that takes a little extra work on our end. Another reason is because so much of the book of Revelation is referring to Old Testament illusions. And unfortunately, you and I are living in an era where biblical illiteracy is at a peak. Like, we don't read our Bibles anymore. And so we'll read through and be like, that's crazy. And it's like, yeah, it's Daniel. It's Ezekiel. Right? And so for Jews, first century Jews, man, they, they're picking that up left and right. And they'd studied those. They understood those. So so that's where a lot of times it's confusing for us is we're not uh, aware of some of those things. And we'll have some example of that today uh, as we look at some of these introductions to it this morning. So, so just keep that in mind. We, we need to do the work to see what did this mean to the initial audience and still apply it for us today and anticipate prophecy and what it might mean for us in the future, but never, never losing sight of what it meant in its original context. So one final point before we read our verses for today. The other thing we need to keep in mind is why was this written? And, and this to me is really important. Uh, a lot of times the discussion that centers around Revelation is, okay, well, persecution was taking place and 
John was being persecuted for his faith. The churches were being persecuted under Nero and Domitian and all these crazy emperors. And so they're probably writing this letter to encourage people in this very highly intense political persecuted environment. And I absolutely believe there's an element of truth to that. But let's not lose sight of the fact that there's more to this letter. And when you read the letters to the churches in the first few chapters, you'll see that five of those seven churches have theological problems. And what that should tell us is that John is just as concerned about the heresy that is seeping into the congregations and, and their loyalty to Christ than he is their socio-political situation. Right? And so as a result, it becomes wildly important, not just for those churches, but all churches throughout generations. Right? How do you maintain a theological anchor? How do you see God's power work in the church? And that's what I hope for us to discover throughout the course of this series. Okay, so let's, let's get started this morning. It'll be, it'll be brief in nature because I know I had to do a lot of background to set the tone this morning. We're gonna start in verse nine. Last week, if you're here for our Easter service, we did uh, all that we could to help convey what Jesus has done from beginning to end and that led us through kind of this, this declaration of Jesus being the Alpha and the Omega, which you find in those first few verses, uh, first eight verses in, in uh, Revelation chapter one. So it set kind of the tone, makes for a natural transition for us this morning, and we're gonna pick up in verse nine and read through verse 20 uh, as an introduction to these letters that'll follow in the coming weeks. It says in verse nine, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet was like bronze glowing in a, in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right, it's a wonderful introduction and we're gonna try to, to capture a couple of elements this morning. I'm actually gonna try to work in reverse. Uh, that made more sense in my mind as I was preparing this message. The, the first is that you have these these images of lampstands and stars, and you get a very clear interpretation of those things at that concluding verse. You wanna know what they are? Angels to the churches and the churches themselves, right? So Jesus himself says it there. So I wanna point that out for you in terms of defining what these images are. But I also really love the statement that you have from Jesus beginning in verse 17, right? He says, don't be afraid. I am the living one. I was dead, but now I'm alive forever. I hold the keys to death in Hades. What, what this is showing us is that John has centered his understanding of this vision and, and everything that we're about to read around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like that, that's 
what we have here. I was dead, but now I'm alive forever. And I hold the keys to death in Hades. That is the symbol of status and authority. In fact, it wasn't uncommon for kings to wear a key as a necklace around their necks to, to demonstrate authority and power. So when Jesus is saying, I have the keys to death in Hades, I have authority over those things. I can come in and out and enter into those things as I please. And so it's a, it's a designation, a clear declaration of all of the centering around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? But then the, the elements prior to that, those verses prior to that from, from verse 9 and onward, really kind of, to me, address two different things that I want to hit on this morning. Who's speaking? Right? A description of, of the person speaking, Jesus himself, what we'll get to. But then also, who's listening? Those are the two things that I wanna just use to kind of help set the tone for this series. Now, we know for various reasons that the particular voice that John is hearing in chapter one is the voice of Jesus. Now, if you carry a red letter Bible, like I do, a red letter Bible means that all the words of Jesus are written in red font, uh, that helps you. You can start reading through it, and you're like, oh, okay, this is Jesus, it's written in red. But as you read through Revelation, you'll have other indicators that, that give us the clues and the understanding that that is in fact Jesus speaking, but there are other moments in Revelation where John hears a loud voice that's a voice of an angel, right? So it helps to answer those questions. But, but for us, what we see here in chapter one is that it is the voice of Jesus, and so when we ask who is speaking, we have this beautiful description of Jesus in this paragraph starting in verse 12. And, and I just wanna take some time to look at how Jesus is described as speaking to John in Revelation chapter one. All right, it's, really, it's really fascinating. The first thing that we see is that he has this long robe that goes down to his feet and then a golden sash. Now this is a great example of language and terminology that doesn't always connect across generations. Because if you're like me, when you hear Jesus is dressed in a long robe and a sash, I think bathrobe, and then the next picture that comes to my mind is the sash that you see in beauty pageants, right? And those two things seem like an odd combination. And yet that's how Jesus is being described. So in my mind, in my country, I'm like, I don't really know what that looks like. But the reality is, is that clearly that's not what John is referring to. This is likely referring to priestly garments, right? So the, the priesthood that was established through Aaron and his descendants wore these robes and these golden sashes. And so this reference to this voice being dressed in that long robe and golden sash is declaring Jesus as high priest. And if you were to compliment, which we'll do this on several occasions, compliment your reading of Revelation with the book of Hebrews, it's so perfect because Hebrews brings so much clarity to the Judaic heritage and what Jesus fulfilled in his ministry. And you can read in Hebrews what it means to have Jesus as a great high priest. Right? The high priest would enter into the temple, the earthly tabernacle, and bring in a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, for his sins and the sins of the people by the blood of an animal. And so the author of Hebrews says what Jesus does as the great high priest is not enter into the earthly tabernacle, but the heavenly one, to the true most holy of holies in the presence of God and not by the blood of animals, but by his own blood once and for all, for the forgiveness of sins. Right? So to see Jesus as a great high priest is a reminder to see him as that ultimate high priest that forever forgives us by the shedding of his blood. It's not only this robe and this sash, he has white uh, hair, hair as white as wool, white as snow. Now again, 
we would read this and, and maybe miss some of the allusions. This is a direct allusion to Daniel chapter 7. All right, so if you are familiar with the book of Daniel at all, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a dream of four beasts. And in the middle of that dream, there is a, a moment where he sees the Ancient of Days. Ancient of Days is another title for God. And in that vision of the Ancient of Days, he describes what the Ancient of Days looks like. And the Ancient of Days has hair as white as wool. So the Jewish readers would immediately pick up on, this is the Ancient of Days. Right? That's, that's who this is. And that's a, an undeniable statement of the divinity of this voice, the divinity of Christ. And, and not just that, white hair, white as wool, carries certain significance. Okay, again, this is a disconnect for us because we live in a culture that celebrates youthfulness. Right? We marvel at youthfulness and so we color our hair. Right? Like we're like, oh man, there's gray. Let me get something, you know, I don't want anybody to know I'm turning gray. In a number of cultures, they celebrate white hair because it means wisdom. It's, it's desired, it's sought after, it's celebrated because the wisdom that comes with age. And so part of what this imagery of, of this white hair could also demonstrate is the wisdom of God. And so then you can infuse what we learned in 1 Corinthians that talks about the wisdom of God. And what do we learn in 1 Corinthians? Right, that, that the wisdom of God is not the same as the wisdom of the world. In fact, to those who are perishing, to those who don't believe in Jesus, the wisdom of God looks like foolishness. But for those who believe, those who are being saved, we see it as the wisdom of God. And what we see is that the wisdom of God is a demonstration of God's power through the cross and the resurrection. Foolishness to those who are perishing, but wisdom to those who are being saved. And so that should also serve as a reminder to us that we are not to dictate our lives by following the wisdom of the world. We should never let the wisdom of the world shape our view of Christ because quite frankly, the world is dumb. And I mean that, like they're dumb, like we are dumb. And so we then let our vision of Christ shape our view of the world. We adhere to the wisdom of God, not to the wisdom of mankind. Right, so you have that statement and hair being uh, white as wool. What was next was the eyes like blazing fire. Hey, this is likely referring to judgment. Right, this, is, this is a statement of Jesus returning in a spirit of judgment. And this is also uncomfortable for us, something that we typically like to leave out because we don't like to talk about judgment a lot of times associated with the gospel. What I have sensed has happened in American Christianity that, that the wider culture has picked up on as well is we've camped out under those verses, judge not lest ye be judged, right? Don't, don't try to remove the, the splinter in your brother's eye and ignore the log in your own. And so that has materialized into this kind of ethos where you just can't judge. Judgment is just not, and now those verses are true, like you can't dismiss those, but make no mistake, there is judgment in the gospel and that judgment comes with Christ. When he returns, he comes to judge the hearts and souls and minds of all mankind. His eyes are like blazing fire. Now his feet, feet and face, I like to put in the same context because I feel like they, they mean more or less the same thing. So if you look at verse 13, we see feet that are like bronze going in a furnace. And then you go to the end uh, of verse 16, and his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Uh, the, the glowing feet and the shining brilliance of the face 
is depicting God's glory. These, again, are similar images that you would find in visions in Ezekiel and Daniel, right? Which I love the consistency. It's like when God reveals himself, it's kind of the same depiction of his glory. Now, glory, like how do you describe heavenly things with earthly words? You can't. You can't describe the indescribable. And so you see the authors in scriptures doing their best, and this is their attempt to, to demonstrate it. Glory is just the weight of God, the presence of God that makes you fall down in humble submission. And again, one of the things that I love in terms of our understanding of, of glory comes from Hebrews chapter one. What does it tell us in Hebrew one? That Jesus was the exact representation of his being and the radiance of God's glory. So Jesus reveals the glory of God from head to toe. Everything about him reveals the weight and significance and glory of God. Love this description. What comes after his feet is his voice is like the sound of rushing waters. The sound of rushing waters would be incredibly powerful. It's a reminder that when God speaks, planets are formed. That's the sort of power that comes with his voice. And when he declares, and so when we hear the voice of rushing waters, it's a reminder of the fullness of God's power, and especially that power that's exerted in Christ. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Right hand is a symbol of safety and power, right? So it's, it's continuing that theme of power, but also includes safety. And what I would point out to you here is that it's in his right hand that he holds the seven stars, which are the angels of the churches, right? And so part of what we can perhaps infer from this sort of description is that Jesus holds the church in his right hand. He holds the church in safety and in power. And so when we think about how do we commit to this gospel, how do we live our lives as a community of faith, as the church, we do not need to capitulate and go with the ever-changing winds of culture out of fear of ridicule and uh, hostility, hostility or, or whatever that might be because we ultimately are held safely in the right hand of Christ. What did Jesus say to Peter? On you, Peter, my rock, I will build this church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We have nothing to fear. Nothing will come against and overcome the church of the living God. He holds us and power and safety in his right hand. And then after that, we have the sword, the double-edged sword that is coming out of his mouth. That's a really crazy image, right? That's, that's nuts. Now we know sword is a weapon of war. It was used for battle. It was used for conquest. And so we can see that Jesus is coming back in the spirit of battle and conquest, but he's using the sword differently. He's not wielding it in his hand like a warrior. It's coming out of his his mouth. And so this is my interpretation of that image. I again go to Hebrews. And what do we see in the book of Hebrews? That the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. And so when you see a double-edged sword coming out of the mouth of the one that is speaking, it makes me think of the word of God. And what Hebrews tells us is what does the word of God do? It penetrates, right? It penetrates between bone and marrow, penetrates your heart, your soul, judging the thoughts and attitudes in the heart of mankind, right? When God speaks, it defines everything about who we are. He comes to demonstrate the power of his word. What an incredible description of who is speaking. And here's what I love about it. What I love about it is, 
is the juxtaposition that it creates after Easter Sunday. Because you go through Easter Sunday and you focus on the suffering servant. You go through that Holy Week and you read Isaiah 52 and 53 and you're reminded of the image of Jesus on the cross. And what do we see? According to Isaiah, that his, his form was marred beyond human likeness. There was nothing in his appearance that would attract us to him. No beauty or majesty that we would desire him, like one from whom people hide their faces, we held him in low esteem. And so we have this image of a broken and battered and bloodied, crucified Jesus that overwhelms us with his love and the extent of his sacrifice. And then you get to Easter Sunday. Right? And there we get descriptions of the resurrected Jesus, right? The empty tomb Jesus that over the period of 40 days makes many convincing proofs that he is alive. He appears to more than 500 brothers and sisters and shows them, hey, touch the scars in my hand. Let's eat fish together. All these demonstrations. And we see a picture of a resurrected Jesus that death has been defeated. But this is different. This is not the suffering servant Jesus. It's not the resurrected Jesus. This is the ascended king. Which image do you most frequently hold in your mind when you think of Jesus? I think they're all important. I don't think one is, is more important than another, but I do think we are often more quick to forget the ascended king. So when we hear these letters to these churches, do not run far from this description. The voice that is coming to us is one of an ascended king, robed in glory and strength and authority. That's who we follow. Now, very quickly, let's consider who's listening if that's who's speaking, who's listening? So we're working in reverse. Obviously, who's listening in this particular moment is John. We see that in verse nine. I, John, had this vision on Patmos. But, but what I love is how he has identified himself with the churches. We know that he's writing these letters to the seven churches. Those seven churches are listed out. So it's John and the seven churches that are gonna be listening to this. In verse nine, I love the way that he gives some color and character to the nature of that relationship. He says, I, John, a brother and companion, Right, so I'm with you in this. This is not just to the seven churches. I join them in this. And what are they sharing in together? What is the nature of this bond, the naturehood of this relationship and this fellowship in their church? They are a brother, and he is a brother and a companion in what? In suffering, in kingdom, in patient endurance. So when we think about what it means to be the church, John just gave us a great insight to that identity. We are companions in suffering and kingdom and patient endurance, right? Suffering is a great reminder that, listen, when we go through this life, it is going to be difficult. We live in a broken world. We are called to die to self. Jesus has taught his disciples, right? If I am going to suffer to this extent, so will you, no student is greater than their teacher. No servant greater than his master. So if Jesus suffered, so will we. Part of the Christian life of discipleship is to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. And so before we cry out, that's not fair. Why did you create such suffering? We need to never lose sight of the fact that we exist in a broken world and Jesus joins us in our suffering. He doesn't leave us alone in it. He joins us in it. And that suffering 
refines us and purifies us so that we can demonstrate our obedience and our commitment to him. If it were easy, we wouldn't be able to demonstrate that as clearly. That's what makes it so meaningful. He gives it to us, but he doesn't ask us to walk alone. And he allows us to walk through that journey of suffering together. So we're companions in suffering, but we're companions in kingdom. I love this, kingdom of God. That's, that's such a common phrase. How do we understand kingdom of God? When I was in seminary, uh, there were numerous books that you could read and pick up on this, numerous lectures that we would go through, and probably the most consistent description of kingdom of God that I heard when I was in school was it's the now and the not yet. I paid a lot of money to be told that, and I gave it to all you for free this morning, right? The now and the not yet. It's the kingdom of God. What that means is, is that Jesus comes and he says, the kingdom of God is near. Repent, believe the good news. And so when we respond to Jesus as Lord and Savior, we get a taste of that kingdom now. Through transformation, through purpose, through victory in this life, through the ability to overcome so many of the, the, the sins, the failures, the mistakes, the brokenness that surrounds us. We see the kingdom here in this moment, but we also know it's not here in its fullness. It's why suffering continues. And so we're longing for the kingdom that is to be. We build as much of the kingdom as we can right now, but we anticipate the ultimate kingdom with Jesus' return, which tells us that our lives are not to be pursued or are not meant to be guided and driven by pursuing earthly treasures, but the everlasting kingdom. And so we have to constantly challenge one another. What, what's shaping your life? Earthly comforts, earthly conveniences, kingdoms of this world that will fail and pass away, or the kingdom that is forever, the kingdom that is not yet. That's what we're made for. And so when you combine those two things, when you combine suffering and the, the waiting and the anticipation of the everlasting kingdom, you know what you need? Patient endurance. <laughs> Man, we want it quick. We want it immediate. To be a follower of Jesus, to be a part of his church, means we come in solidarity alongside one another in patient endurance. The distresses that we face will not just be whisked away. Whatever they may be, whatever challenges, whatever burdens you carry into this room, they, they don't just immediately get vanished. We have to endure with patient endurance. We have to commit and live a life of obedience and servanthood, radical and unyielding love for the neighbor. And if we do that, think about what takes place. Think about the power of God that we begin to see unleashed. That's who's listening. And we join John and we join these churches with that posture of listening. And I wanna close by reminding you of that little blessing that we find in verse three. We didn't read it this morning, but it's there. Right? These are the words of the revelation of Jesus. Blessed are those who hear and take them to heart. So my hope is that as we go through this series, we wouldn't just come in here and hear and forget. We take them to heart. And think of the things that we discover when we truly begin to see God's power for his church. We see that the church truly is invincible. Right? We see that we are empowered by the Spirit's breath. We're nourished 
by his word. We're able to be covered in his grace. We see that God is our help. He is our reward. We walk by faith in things that are unseen. We stand on these promises. Those are the things that allow us to live with that patient endurance. We know that when sorrows and persecutions come, his light does not fade. And that on this day, when that kingdom is ultimately fulfilled and we're all gathered in, he wipes every tear and he wipes away every sin. When we truly listen and hear and see this power that will be unleashed, we know that truth and justice and beauty will shine. We know that we'll get to be with God for all eternity. That's the power of God that we long for. So let us allow it to be unleashed in our lives and in our church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to hear these words spoken so many years ago that have carried on from generation to generation. We pray they would strengthen us and equip us and encourage us to unwavering faithfulness. Father, that we would feel you prompt us towards transformation, towards purpose. God, that we would be people that that go and make and live this life of radical obedience, of servanthood, of of a radical and unyielding love to those around us. Father, and then in our efforts to, to demonstrate that sort of commitment and that sort of love, Father, we would grow deeper in our affections for you. And you would remind us of these promises. We, you would remind us of these truths. And we would see your power truly unleashed in our lives and in this church, both now and forevermore. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.